Hey there, welcome to the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline. I am the founder of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives to see what makes them tick and see how they got where they are today. So sit back, relax. I look forward to sharing their journey with you. All right. All right, guys. Welcome. Today I have with us a bit of a rock star. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit of ZBrush. We're going to talk a little bit of game arts. Uh, we're just going to talk a little bit about arts and all of that good stuff. And so if you're listening on the podcast later on afterwards, you might hear us referencing the screen or something like that. And you can just head over to GameArtInstitute.com to find the blog post and watch the recording of this. If you guys here are live, make sure that you're muted. And uh, if you've got questions, just put them in the chat and we will go from there. As I mentioned before, this is something that we do live with the boot campers every single week. We bring somebody in and we have a conversation. And right now today, we have several people from the art test in here as well as kind of a special bonus. So Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Let me grab the Absolutely. chat Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, why don't we um, do a quick rundown of who are you? What do you do? You know, for those people who've been living under a rock. Sure. Okay. Uh, so way back when I went to Ringling School of Art and Design, which is now Ringling College, I graduated there with a degree in computer animation. They didn't have the game development thing that they do now. So I ended up going from there to, you know, that's in Sarasota, Florida. I went up up a couple hours north to Orlando, Florida, where I worked at EA Tiburon, working on Madden, uh, NCAA head coach. Uh, all those kind of sports types games for about 18 months. And then I went over back to Austin to uh, work at DC Universe Online at Sony SOE, Sony Online Entertainment, SOE, which is now Daybreak. So uh, I worked there mm -hmm. for like four or five years on uh, DC Universe Online. Uh, I don't have any of that stuff in my portfolio. Then I went from there to Certain Affinity, where we were uh, like a third party kind of co-developer. So we worked on uh, Halo, Call of Duty, Doom, Mafia, and a million other games in that same vein. A lot of first-person shooter stuff. So that's kind of the short and sweet of my professional path. And uh, here's some, you know, on my art station page, you can kind of follow a lot of that here. I've done some tutorials for way back in the day, E3D. Um, I done some freelance work here and there. And then a lot of stuff. I do a lot of training at my job, every job I've ever been to. So you know, I was a very early adopter on like substance designer, substance painter way back before it was cool to use those programs. I was using them. Mm -hmm. and I remember seeing those tutorials. Yeah. Yeah. Way they, you know, so my GDC 2015 presentation, it was me and just a couple other guys. And we had to re basically revamp uh, Halo 2 uh, with PB, you know, PBR was brand new. That was like a whole new thing. We were just the very forefront of that and also the very forefront of procedural texturing tools. So I did a whole GDC presentation on uh, our process there. And this is like, uh, this is a little more brute force process. But you can watch that if you want. It's a pretty fun hour and nothing's really changed. I mean, the tools have changed. The tools have gotten better. But the overall idea behind what proceduralism is and how you can utilize it as an artist, that's still pretty solid. So it's still a good watch, I think. I might be biased, but there's that. <laughs> And, yeah, so uh, in short, uh, game artist, teacher, and you've been doing this uh, about how long? Okay, so I graduated in 2000 and, oof, 2006. So 2006 on, so say 12 years, give or take. Awesome. Yeah. And what got you into this? Well, that's a good question. Let me think about that. So 
Well, what got me into the entertainment field is, I, I think everybody probably says something like this, but it was Star Wars for sure. But for me, it was like Jurassic Park and watching the making of and where they were just starting to do like, you know, oh, they, we tried some, uh, what they call it. it wasn't stop motion, but it was like stop motion two or, you know, blur motion or whatever they were calling it. And uh, then they started doing CG and the early, early um, CG stuff. And I saw that stuff and it was like my mind exploded. That was one of the first movies I actually went to like 10 times to see in the theater. So that got me on my I really want to do this for a living type thing. And then, uh, you know, it was film totally. or games. And I just kind of went into games after Ringling. I got recruited by EA. And so that kind of set me on my path and haven't looked back since. Awesome. And uh, you've been in this for a while. And um, I've got a big audience of basically students. And you teach as well, and you teach people for the game industry and all of that. What kind of jobs do you think are out there now for people that are starting and getting themselves moving? Because I think you run between character and a couple of other things, right? Or do you consider yourself just character? You know, I wish I was just a character artist. I'd make my life a lot easier. I just got promoted, or I don't know, uh -huh. it doesn't feel like it. It's a definitely a, I don't know, it was kind of a lateral move. I was an individual contributor, principal artist, and then I kind of slid on over into management just to kind of get some stuff done. So I'm a, character director but at certain affinity specifically our character team is actually a sandbox team so it's characters weapons and vehicles so basically anything that gets rigged and goes into game our department takes care of and now i'm in charge of those departments for every single project we have in the studio so honestly i would love to do characters but most of my time is spent just this week doing a lot of redirector and real stuff administrative duties and then uh a lot of weapons and a lot of vehicles and then characters are kind of they're they're the easy part actually at this point is that a common thing to be switching from character to vehicle or is that just that your might, unique skill set? that might be a more of a certain affinity thing we run pretty lean we have a lot of uh, yeah. we're a little top heavy as far as seniors go so it's a very we're trying to change that though we're trying to distribute our weight a little bit better we were just a really really small group of very very senior experienced artists who could do a lot of stuff but now we're trying to transition into being a little bit more normal so we would have more bodies to get stuff done and uh, not rely so much on just a few when uh, you know we're still using procedural tools and we're still working smart uh, but it is yeah. good to kind of distribute your people a little bit better than that okay got it so what does a day look like for you so go to work Right now, I'm doing a lot of, for me personally, I'm doing a lot of workflow and pipeline work. So it's very high mm -hmm. level. It's basically, you know, you start with organization, you lock down uh, as much as you can. You, you know, you actually have a, I might have a presentation. Eh, you know, it's all at work. Never mind. Um, <laughs> I have a whole presentation <laughs> on this. But essentially, what we call a middle out pipeline, it's not middle out like uh, Silicon Valley, but it's, a, it's still a middle out pipeline where we start with tech and tech art as our center, and then they drive best practices up to our artists, and then they downstream drive everything from assembly into engine. So what we're trying to do is make our artists autonomous. And so mm -hmm. what, that's what I'm trying to integrate right now is setting up a workflow and a pipeline for our artists so that they can go from high res all the way into engine with very few steps all completely automated, completely rigged. You can grab, you know, base, base mesh, you can copy weights, you can make your own weights. There's no bottlenecks. And so you basically, essentially, you get your concept sketch in very quickly. And then you see it in engine immediately and you make good decisions in context. You're not working in a vacuum, spinning in ZBrush and noodling on it or with a mood painting or with a drawing. Everything we work on is an engine and context put together. So again, you're making all the good decisions in context, hopefully, as much as you can. Got it. So a lot of workflow. Well, yeah. My dream is uh, I spent a lot of time doing this workflow and pipeline and updating that. 
And then yeah. that'll be self-sustaining. And then I can uh, kind of fall back into stuff I really want to do, which is get back into the weeds again, which I shouldn't, but, uh, you know, get back into art and learning new stuff and picking up some new tools. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you're working a lot on workflow, but like, what does a normal day look like for you as an artist? You get into the office, you have your meetings, are you reviewing work? Do you guys have like a regular time that everybody reviews progress or how's that? Just looking for like a simple picture of what life's like for... Michael. Yeah, my my personal picture is probably pretty boring. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the picture of a, the the average artist that would be not me because <laughs> my my life like the past week I've been literally just moving files, cooking windows, bakes, making sure I'm not breaking anything, cleaning up redirectors. So that's my day. What well, coming in well, the morning? You know, and then leave. you know where I'm leading with this is there's a lot of other stuff that you do. And so, you know, I want to kind of get a picture of what you do and then how all of your training and all of that stuff kind of fits into that because, you know, you produce a lot of content. Gotcha. Gotcha. Actually, yeah. So before I became workflow and pipeline heavy and I kind of switched yeah. gears, uh, this is a really good microcosm of that is this. Uh, so just recently at the ZBrush Summit, which was not that long ago, a month ago, maybe uh, mm -hmm. I gave a presentation. It was about an hour long of and here's uh, so it was a ZBrush Summit and I have my ZBrush Summit presentation right here. It's about an hour. And then I went back through on my YouTube channel and did a 96 video breakdown of my slides, just going like, hey, you know, I don't have enough time to demo everything, but you know, I'll go on my YouTube channel and Twitch stream channel. And we just, I just did a walkthrough of all, every single one of my hundred and something slides. Mm -hmm. And essentially this is, was be, is like my dream workflow and pipeline setup at work brute force. So essentially I come into the office every day. Uh, I have my tasks to work on. I'm getting my concepts in the game. I'm very quickly sculpting things out. Let me see if I have... This is actually might be even better to kind of walk through real quick. Let me see, ZBrush. I, I'm, I'm going through my 3D files. I'm getting them into engine. I'm throwing them through Painter really quickly. Oh, good. I do have it. So I tend to lean on ZBrush quite a bit. Uh, it's not everybody's mm -hmm. cup of tea. And at our studio, we're not overly concerned about what you use to model. Um, I need to dig deep into Blender. Just recently on um, AMD's channel, we did a Threadripper influencer thing with me and Jerry Perkins, Master Zeon. You might know him from like Hard Ops and uh, all his Blender tools. So he's been trying to convince me for years to go to Blender. And I've been saying, I know, I know, I will, I will. And then I never follow through. But soon I'll be following through. Yeah, but I just uh, opened that up a couple of weeks ago. And um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, they're telling like me 2.8. They're saying, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm jumping in. They're like, hold on, just wait till 2.8 comes out. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but uh, okay, it sounds good. So soon, I think they're revamping something, maybe the interface or something special to them. And then, uh, then I'll hop I in. Hope, hop I in. hope that'd, that'd be nice. <laughs> but yeah, basically my dream thing, if I'm doing, it doesn't matter if I'm doing weapons, vehicles, characters, it all starts out the same. I do my quick blockouts. Maybe I spend 15 minutes. Maybe I spend a couple of hours. I throw it through Painter. This right here would be maybe a couple hours worth of work just to kind of, this is a blockout sketch. You know, you have a concept, mm -hmm. I do a blockout sketch and then I throw it in the painter and then we throw it into engine. She walks around, she can run around. Same thing with the weapons. It's all the same thing. Even if we want to do really quick, you know, extrusion studies on just silhouette or just have your drawing in game, you can do that. And that's what we call, you know, eventually we refine the weapons, throw some material IDs on there and then it becomes a grandma test. And then we're always, always testing functionality early. Our animation team plays a huge role in how we design. So, you know, we do designs uh, early. You can go in here and you grab your weapon. Even as an artist, we're, we're, the workflow and pipeline stuff that I'm doing makes this much nicer. 
But essentially, this is the poor man's version back then of me just exporting FBX mm -hmm. with baked animation and just running over and grabbing it. But yeah, so essentially, this thing right here is a you know four hour to a couple day concept sketch that we take in the game. Same thing with this one. All of these things here are just concept sketches. Now, again, I lean on ZBrush quite a bit to do this quickly, but God, use whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Game reses don't matter at this point. It's all about getting the information and engine in context first, and then we can make the decisions on how we want to attack optimization, uh, reuse. You know, we still want to answer good performance questions as much as we can, but really it's more about, you know, visually uh, what we are, what we're expecting. So, so let me, well, let, me uh, let me interrupt you there if I, if I can, because this is one of the kind of things that's really um, key for me, right? In the boot camp, one of the, primary focuses I have. I'm not interested in teaching software anymore. I kind of, you know, I did my time in the trenches. So now what I'm looking at is what are the things that move the needle on somebody's career? So you were talking about, you know, resolution's not really important. And what's important is getting all of the information in. So what are some of the triggers that when you're looking at other people's work, you know, you're not looking at the low res and people still to this day, they fixate on low res. You're not looking at that. What do you look at now to see whether or not somebody's pro or not? Or that's a really good. A, the way I like to phrase it is job candidate or not a job candidate. Yeah, that's a really good point. So now I'm on the you know you know people still look a little low reses. I still work with people that do. I'm on the low end of caring about UVs and low reses, but you know my your mileage may vary depending on the studio, depending on the lead. I still know a lot of leads who live and die by uh, vert tweaking and UV. Mm -hmm padding and all that good stuff. And it's all good stuff to know. And those are all parameters that certainly you would want to dial in and optimize as much as possible. But for me personally, it's about the presentation and it's about um, design skill. And I would agree with you in that what software you use absolutely doesn't matter. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, okay, let's say you use ZBrush and let's say you use ZBrush and you know 5% of it and you use uh, ClayBrush and Dynamesh and that's all you know how to use. If you're an amazing designer, and even if you work a little slow, you will probably arrive at the right conclusion faster than somebody who knows all the techniques in the world, but can't design their way out of a paper bag. Now, there's a balance there. And mm -hmm. I, I've watched enough master classes to know, because I always watch these master classes and I'm like, oh, I'm going to pick up so much good information, but I'm thinking <laughs> technically minded. And I'll watch the master class and I'll be like, I picked up zero from this talk. Mm -hmm. I learned nothing about modeling. I learned nothing about the technical aspects of the program. It's essentially, watching the best modelers in the world is like, how do you like to extrude faces? How do you like the bevel edges? This is not new information. <laughs> this is not exciting. This is just, it, it, it's been the exact same way for 20 years. What's exciting is they're good designers. And in fact, I've watched several master classes where their technique and their workflow is pretty terrible but they still arrive at an excellent, amazing looking conclusion because they design mm -hmm. well. So the technique is what it is. And if you can design well and have good technique and workflows, that's icing on the cake. But really what's important and what's gonna set you apart is your design skills and making appealing objects. And honestly, I wish I was better at that. And that's something I'm always striving to be better at, but just like anatomy and learning anatomy and teaching anatomy, I'm never, I know this, I'm never gonna be a master anatomist. This is a lifelong thing. I'm going to teach anatomy. I'm going to learn anatomy for the rest of my life. I used to think I'm going to master anatomy any day now. And, uh, and then after about 10 years, I'm like, I know like 17, 18%. I don't even know. Like, could I sit down and I, I think I do pretty good, 
but boy, do I have a, I mean, I'll watch, uh, you know, a lot of anatomy stuff. I read a lot of anatomy books and I'm still like, wow, I don't really know. I couldn't really, I don't really know that much. All things considered, you know? So it's same thing with design. It's something that's just going to be a lifelong trek and journey, but I wish I had started earlier and started being more mindful of what makes something appealing. When I go on art station and I like something, why do I like it? What makes this successful? You know, all the things that make it cool, focus on that and technique just comes. Great. That's a great, and you know, I'm glad you brought up anatomy because anatomy, uh, I had the same journey as you. And, um, one of my friends, Eric, actually, I think he helped me kind of get some clarity on this because he doesn't know everything about anatomy, but he just developed level of comfort to be able to do whatever he wanted. And, um, you know, when we think about anatomy, it's this never ending project, but there are triggers that tell people, I don't know anatomy. Or, you know, if you look at work, for example, in my case, if I look at somebody's work, I can know in about, you know, 10 seconds where they are in their understanding of anatomy. And I don't look at the torso, I look at the wrists. I look at the knee. You know, that tells me everything I need to know. So if the wrists look great, I know everything else is going to look great. If the wrists don't look great, then the next thing I do is I go and I look at elbows, I look at the shoulder. And then I'll know from there, you know, probably they got a decent torso modeled out, but you know, the wrists are crap. They haven't gone in and studied the radius and the ulna, the stylic process, all that stuff. And they're just not kind of clear on it. Are there triggers in design or in this, you said, appealing object? Are there triggers, little things that when you see them, you're like, yes, that works or no, that doesn't work, like common mistakes? I am a prolific note taker and I have a lot of notes. Mm -hmm. I'm going through like, you know, intrinsic design, Mike Hill design, and then going, I've been blocking out the H point uh, fundamentals of car design and packaging book, incredible book. So when it comes to design, I'm still learning a lot and also like taking, you know, learning enough. I don't need to be a mechanical engineer, but I do need to know enough about how things function in order to build that library of functionality inside my head so I can kind of riff. Kind of the same thing mm-hmm. with anatomy. In order to make a cool, appealing character, I need to know enough of the functionality of it in order to make an appealing character. One thing that you, while you were talking about, like, oh, I can look at the wrist, uh, I can look at the knee, and I absolutely agree because... Those are, you know, you, you know, when you first start, you, you know, your biceps or your chest or, you know, all this stuff that you learn first because it's exciting. Um, for me, when I look at a character model, I'll look at the ears and I can tell a character artist who has an attention to detail and observation and actually kind of goes not above and beyond, but actually can make a good solid character is I'll look at their ears. And if their ears are flat and mushy, you know, they kind of did a first pass on the ear and then just kind of left them there for the rest of their project. You'd be surprised how often I see that. And in fact, it's mm. like almost almost every time the ears are just left as block out one. And then the rest of it will be the nostrils, the lips, the eyelids, gorgeous, the bridge of the nose. Everything's pretty beautifully blocked out and the ears are just mush. The ears are nothing. So that, that would be one thing that jumps out to me on the character side that I see a lot. As far as vehicles, what does it tell you when somebody's left the ears? Like in your mind, what is going on? Is it that they're not, they don't have attention to detail, that they're phoning it in or like what goes on in your mind? It's not necessarily negative. I mean, I certainly went Mm -hmm. through this too. You know, when I did my heads, I'm sure if I went back through my old stuff, I would see some pretty nasty ears. And hell, even if I went through my (laughs) recent stuff, I'd probably see some ears that I could probably spend more time on. It's really more just to me screams uh, student work, which isn't a bad, if you're a student and you have student ears, that's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to compete, 
and with other students, that's just an easy way. And again, I'm, I could be the only person on the planet who looks at ears and I could be just telling you to waste your time on ears, but it's that type of thing that would just separate you from another person who sculpts really good faces and leaves their ears alone. Hey, make some nice ears and it doesn't take you that long. And you'd be surprised how much that helps because it's right there. It's not like it's hidden. They're, they're right there on the side of the face. <laughs> I love that. That's great. So is there something like that in hard surface? Because I remember... Like it was, uh, it was long before ZBrush's new tool set. And it was like in my early days of ZBrush workshops. And I'm like, I'm going to teach people how to do everything inside of ZBrush. And so I like, I started doing hard surface tutorials. And then as soon as I got into hard surface tutorials, I'm like, I'm never going to do any hard surface again, ever. Because <laughs> this shit's hard. Man, this is tougher than anatomy. I'm going to go sculpt some faces, please. This stuff's tough. So what are some of the triggers, some of the things when people are building mechanical stuff that tell you, you know, student work versus not student work? For me, it is the overuse of just having a shape that you go th- and it. And the, I know why they do it is because it's easy. So two things. Number one, you have a shape that you bevel. And then if you want to inset a shape, you go to that face and you inset and you extrude it down. And that's how you do your shapes. It's really obvious when I can see exactly what your base shape is and what your inset shapes is. Mm-hmm. And I can see you taking the path of least resistance. And it's not to say you can't work smart and can't design well within those parameters. But honestly, I have yet to see when you're talking about breakup and breakup of shapes. The reason why I like using ZBrush is the less I think about what geometry is underlying, the less I'm reliant on, well, I already have an edge there and I already have a face here. So I'm just going to use that geometry mm-hmm. to make my design decisions for me. Rarely Mm -hmm. does that ever work to make a good design. In order to make a good design, you need to put the elements where they need to go, not where it's convenient for you to put it because it's easier and faster. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of one, but that might be a little trickier to see. The easy one to see is you have a shape and you just throw some panel loops on it. You mask it and you just plop it into panels and call it a day. You don't have any separation of depth between high and low surfaces. You don't have any indication of like what sits underneath. It's just a sheet of armor with lines cut in it, and you called it a day. And and also a breakup of your detail. If everything's noisy, then it's boring. You know, there needs to be a place for the eyes to rest and kind of take your eye down the armor design. And then there needs to be a, a sense of what's underneath and what's on top. And then there needs to be detailed areas and then areas for your eyes to rest. So all of that combined is kind of, uh, if, there, if I see a lot of that, then it just kind of screams student. Got it. That's great. That's perfect. I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, that's the key thing for me is whatever it we can do to kind of help people see that they're professional or a job candidate, not student, that's just a win. So talk to me about software because you use a lot of software and um, I'm incredibly inspired by your capacity to absorb these and to be thinking about this in a, in a holistic way. And so as a game artist, well, I'll put it first from my perspective. So as a teacher and somebody who's kind of job focused, I have a lot of students come to me and all they know is ZBrush. What do you recommend people do when they're looking to, you know, get that job? You know, they're focused on that job and maybe they've picked up ZBrush because that's like, that's our crack, right? That's the, you know, we built that thing to be basically as addictive as possible. So, you know, we did our job. And now the question is, if I want to work as a game artist, is it enough to just know ZBrush? What else do people need to make sure that they're solid on? Well, first, I'll let you in on a little secret of how I was able yeah. previously in my career to actually learn a lot of software. And that was, mm-hmm. and it was honestly, it was ZBrush that allowed me to do that because everyone else in my studio, you know, 
if it wasn't a ZBrush-centric uh, studio, I could get my stuff done faster in ZBrush. And I wouldn't sandbag, but I would be given an amount of allotted time. And with ZBrush, I could get my stuff done faster. And then I could kind of use that extra time to learn something new. And I mm-hmm. didn't. And maybe to my discredit, I didn't spend my time polishing. I spent my time learning. Now, looking back, was that the best decision to make? I don't know. Probably. But you know, I did spend that time learning just because I just love it. Like me opening up some new software, it's a little bit terrifying, but it's also like Christmas Day to me. I get to go in there and I'm like, I'm so excited about the possibilities of what I can do in this software that's going to make me uh, a more effective artist and a more effective communicator, mm-hmm. visual communicator, really, because that's what we are. So that was how I learned a lot of software. Now, the real trick to how I learn and retain software is my prolific note-taking. This is a small section on my person. I mean, my, my work one is 10 times this big of every single thing that I learn, Houdini, Marmoset, Houdini, game dev tool set, all of these things. I'm a prolific note-taker. I have to do this. I, I'm not the kind of person who can watch something and go like, oh, I'm going to learn that. And in fact, if anybody needs to show me something at work as simple as what's the best practices for going through and deleting files from Unreal without uh, ruining redirectors and making sure that's clean, I will have them come sit at my desk, put on my headphones and talk while I record them because I'm going to take and document notes later. Now, I do that partially because I'm going to roll this information out later and it has to be documented anyways. But even if I didn't, I would still have screenshots and notes on every single step because I need it. You know, there is so much stuff in here, weapon process and stuff like this, old stuff that I can do in my sleep. I still have notes on it. I still have breakdowns. I still have information and unreal stuff that I can always go back to. So that's how I have to learn software. And also what helps me too is teaching software. It keeps me honest. And then the same thing with anatomy. If I didn't teach anatomy and I didn't teach software, I would be much more inclined to just be like, meh. You know, I would. I know what I know, but if I have to teach anatomy and I got students, I have to. I have to keep up. I have to keep trying. I have to keep doing it. I have to. And the more I do it, the more I'll retain. I'll retain seven percent the first time through. I'll retain an extra three percent the second time through. So even me going over the same information helps me retain better. I become a better artist. Same thing with the software. So teaching, even I don't know how to tell a student how to teach somebody, but maybe I don't know if there's anything there. But teaching has helped me. So if you can kind of lean into that a little bit, maybe your, you know, your direct peers around you, I don't know, it helped me. So maybe it could help you. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, I want to pivot here real quick for just a little bit, because as Jan's, that's a lot of work and you produce the work. One of the things I was trying to get at earlier, maybe I can get at it this way is just how do you stay so productive in the sense of producing? You know, whereas in many cases, a lot of students, you know, and a lot of us as artists, we'll slow down or we'll the critic comes in and we start to overthink, you know, how do you stay so productive? Do you exercise in the morning? Do you wake up at two o'clock with uh, Mark Wahlberg? It's <laughs> your hour and a half of exercise in. Right? Man, it's like you're right here with me. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because for a long time when I was at Tiburon and stuff, I went from a lean, mean 195, I'm 6'3", to 270, 280 uh, while I was working there. And here's the thing about working in CG, you will spend a lot of time on your butt. And what ends up happening, even if you put in crunch hours, you end up waking up, going to work, coming home, going to bed, and then redoing that 
over and over again for the rest of your life. And especially if you end up working a lot on the weekends, because you know, you like doing what you do, you all want to get better. God, if you're sitting down all day, not only will your productivity drop and your brain will start kind of going because your energy levels start dropping, and also just your quality of life and you know, you wanting to be active and be awake <laughs> and be happy. I find and the air mileage may vary, but I find that, you know, I have to, you know, I I just got a new uh, Catahoula pit little girl mix. So we wake up and we go and we go on like a three mile walk and then a three to five mile walk in the morning. Um, what I used to do is just jog on my treadmill and I have a TV on my treadmill and I would sit there and I would watch uh, Proco. I would watch uh, just anatomy stuff. Uh, Proco is the most recent thing I've been watching. Just a ton of anatomy stuff or any any sort of like uh, CG stuff I have on my server just to kind of, you know, it's an easy way for me to just get some energy out and keep moving and then also learn something at the same time. So that's what I used to do. And then I have a way. So I also have a weight room downstairs and I live in Austin, Texas. So, you know, real estate is easy here. I have a downstairs workout room. And the reason I have that is because I know if I have to work in like going to the gym and showering there and then driving and getting in traffic and then taking extra traffic to go to work, I would be less likely to actually lift weights. However, if it's mm -hmm. downstairs, I'm going to do it. Now, that doesn't mean I can't just throw my laundry in there and then never use it. I mean, certainly that's an option. But I'm more likely to, and I try to stay on top of that as much as I can. I mean, I'm still rocking a, mostly a dad bod, but you know, at least it's there. At least I'm trying, and at least it keeps me more active. Because again, this is a very sedentary, you know, until we're in virtual reality and we're whiz banging around doing real time sculptures with our arms and stuff, we're always going to be sitting and moving our wrist a lot. So that is really helpful is kind of stay active and eat right. I don't know that I do, but you know. I try ish. I'm getting older, so that's all. What does that mean? Eat right ish. Is it um, eggs and bacon in the morning? Is it something else? And well, you know, this is really just because in CG we don't talk about this, right? Yeah, you're right. You know, you know, it's just coffee. And so when I see artist interviews, you know, I see everybody just sitting on their butt talking about stuff that they do sitting on their butt. You know, but you know, this is great. So, like, what does it mean? Eat healthy. So we do have a, a small group at work that, uh, and I used to do this too. I would go for my, on my lunches, I would just run. So I'd put on my uh, Bluetooth headphones and I'd listen to Game mm -hmm. of Thrones on my Audible or whatever. And uh, mm -hmm. I kind of miss doing that. Uh, I, now what I do is I wake up in the morning, I might have a little bit of a protein shake after my workout. And then at lunchtime, I'll have another 90 second. And this is why I say uh, healthy-ish is because I know what I'm doing Hmm. It's probably not very nutrient dense and I'm probably not helping myself, but I have another protein shake ish with what do they call those men's daily vitamin thing. Mm -hmm. And then I go home and then I try to have our sensible dinner. So it's like a salad with maybe a little bit of chopped up uh, skirt steak on top of it or, you know, oh, whatever, whatever yeah. we can kind of just throw together. That's kind of meat salad ish, you know, that kind of thing. That doesn't mean I don't make absolutely terrible decisions, especially on the weekends or like pizza night. You know, I, I still I still do that, but I don't do that a lot. I don't you know, I used to, you know, come home, slap down World of Warcraft, uh, have Domino's delivered and have my, you know, large pizza while I, you know, sat around and uh, waited for a group to show up so we could do a dungeon. So that's kind of gone by the wayside. And that's generally how I try to be. But again, I could also be healthier. There's a lot of people at work. They're into the whole keto thing. I could probably have some more greens Ketosis? in my diet. Yeah, they do a lot of the keto stuff. They're really into it. So, uh, you know, doing the blood tests and stuff like that. Um, I'm not quite, I'm not there, but, you know, that's, that's generally what I do. Awesome. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. And so there's one more question I kind of want to get on and around these lines, right? Because you and I have both been in this industry for a long time and, um, you know, there's a certain level of productivity you have. So food is one part. You do some exercise. What about in like your relationships, your partner? What do you do or how do you manage to carve out this much time devoted to this kind of stuff? You know, because family time can take up a lot of time. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, so my kids are my 11-year-old Border Collie mix and my now mm -hmm. um, 10-month-old Catahoula Pity mix. So, you know, they're pretty mm -hmm. self-sustaining. It's not like I have <laughs> real children. Uh, they kind of take care of themselves. But we do have a lot of fun with them. But my wife, she yeah. works at AMD. She's in... She's on the PR marketing side at uh, Advanced Micro Devices mm -hmm. down here in Austin, and uh, she works more than I do. Like she's, like she's crazy, and I'm pretty crazy. But um, you know, there is a balance to be made. I, there, there is such you know, when people say work-life balance, what I, what I think that really truly means is not working nine to five and calling it a day. What I think that means is you have a balance. Maybe you work a lot sometimes when you're really productive, lean into that and be mm -hmm. productive and feel it and get it done and work late nights and early mornings and like really be productive. But you have to balance that. You can't be super productive and then work a nine to five because that's not balance. That's going from super heavy crunch to regular work, right? You have to go from super heavy crunch to very light crunch. That's balance. So for me... I will do a lot of work right now. I've got, uh, let me pull this up here. Um, so I'm about to roll out another video series soon. Mm -hmm. And it is a monster. And this thing was I know. a disaster. <laughs> like, oh. It's oh 24 hours, 260 videos. So I worked a lot, but, and I'm trying to get it out the door and I, you know, I'm just, you know, the hardest video ever to make is the intro video. Like I can do 260 videos of instruction, no problem. The intro video yeah. is like pulling teeth. It's editing and thinking and writing and making it <laughs> concise and pretty. And it's like, oh, God, just let me show you how to use a damn tool. I'm tired of this the intro video taking me <laughs> two weeks to make. But um, but yeah, so I do work a lot. But then I, I'll go months without doing a damn thing. And that's where I tend to get a little bit flaky, you know, because I try to maintain relationships with, you know, the Instalod people and the, um, the uh, photo scan and the, um, oh God, I need to do some videos for it. Let me look at my whiteboard here. Reality capture. I've been meaning to make reality capture videos for them forever. And I completely flaked on them because I always have something come up, but I do work a lot. But then I try to balance that with just like, hey, you know what? This month, I'm just going to come home and I watch TV. And I'll do that for a while. I, I watched, I binge watched with my wife, um, House on Haunted Hill. That was pretty neat, you know? Mm. So I, I have, I don't, I don't see a lot of movies. I don't play a lot of games, but I do spend a lot of time with my wife doing stuff we like to do. But, you know, it's a balance. Sometimes I don't. There's weeks where I'll go and I'll just be like, oh, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. Uh, but then there's weeks where I'm like, hey, you know what? Let's watch <laughs> on Saturday. Let's watch uh, six hours of Netflix, you know? Sounds great. Let's do it. Yeah, exactly. I'm looking forward to it. I'm down. I'm down. I didn't know that was an invitation, but it sounds great. Come on, man. We got a big couch. God, I, with the dog. I love it. Austin, wait, what time? It's yeah, yeah, it's good weather there. The summer when I was there, it was like that's not good weather. No. Oh, it's really cold in the morning, but like right now, it's like super nice. We one of the few weeks of the year it's actually nice to walk outside. Yeah. All right. So 
you do a lot of teaching, you do a lot of work right out there in public in front of people. And, and then you're very much a presence in, uh, in the educational side of this. I want to talk a little bit and just unpack a bit of like what teaching does for you. And earlier you mentioned teaching does a lot just to help you learn. And, you know, I, I can totally relate. But what has it done for you in your career? Like, has it been an impactful and important thing for you in your career? And are there any specifics that could really like a job you got because you taught? That's uh, that's a good question. So, well, so the first time I started teaching was when I was at, uh, well, I guess I did a little bit of Tiburon. Uh, but really at SOE, what got me, we had a very ZBrush-centric pipeline. And mm-hmm. uh, that was DC Universe Online. And it was like a bunch of sculpting of like a superhero comic characters and uh, that kind of thing and getting them into Unreal for like an MMO project. So it was perfect for that. So in order for me to go from uh, what I, I was like associate or a junior or something to a senior, they're like, well, what's something you, you can, hey, you know a lot of ZBrush. If you could put a ZBrush curriculum together, we would promote you to senior. So it was kind of like, okay, in order for me to get promoted, I'll make some videos. And I made those videos. And then uh, Ricky Babington went and he started Eat3D. So I made some videos for him. And that kind of snowballed into me being like, well, if I'm going to teach people at work, which again, that audience is very small. There's not a lot of feedback. Maybe you know, there we're professionals. I mean, I like to make videos and I like to train at work. But the reality is I'll put out a video series. Maybe two people will watch a little bit of it. And that's about it. So internally uh, teaching is necessary and documenting is necessary but really me going external was more about like i'm not getting in much out of this i put a lot of work into these things and if nobody's watching it i'll just go external so that's when i started doing external videos and that kind of snowballed into me just making a lot of videos now i haven't gone about it probably the best way because it is kind of something i do on the side like me doing training videos is kind of a hobby like my youtube channel and my gumroad and my art station my cubebrush page These are just things I do when I have time. I'm really flaky when it comes to responding on Facebook and my social media and Twitter. I'm like a, it's like a old West uh, ghost town, but you know, and occasionally I'll go on there and I'll do my thing. So I'm really, really super terrible at that. But um, you know, how much it's impacted my career. I mean, I get invited a lot of places and I get invited to do a lot of things and uh, you know, talk to people like you and it's uh, that that's, fun and interesting and going to zebra summits you know so having visibility is very useful for that type of thing um mm-hmm. i don't necessarily do it for recognition or anything i don't i don't do it so i can be like hey you know who i am uh, you don't that doesn't really take you very far in this industry uh because nobody cares who you are really outside of like a very small group you don't realize how small cg people like even even if you lump in movies and games we are so tiny compared to industrial manufacturing or real estate or any other business. We are so small. And that's why we have to wait decades before we get a, uh, an iPad that we can actually draw with, with pressure sensitivity. Because you know what's more important than us? Businessmen signing their checks with pressure sensitivity. That's what we have to wait on in order to get a good drawing tablet is to for businessmen to need pressure sensitivity for signing documents on their pad. You know what I mean? So kind of the reality of the situation. But yeah, it's not about me being Michael Pavlovich or me being a, a big shot guy. It's more about just me making stuff. And like you said, keeping me honest and me learning ZBrush at this point, I have to know ZBrush. You know, I don't have an option to be like, eh, maybe I don't learn the next version of ZBrush. It's like, nope, that's not an option anymore. I'm going to learn and I'm going to watch all the Drust's Ask ZBrushes and I'm going to watch all of Paul Gabriel's stuff and I'm going <laughs> to read the documentation. I'm going to know this stuff because it's expected of me. 
but that's good because uh-huh. why wouldn't I want to know tools better? You know, it makes me have more tools for my tool belt. Awesome. Yeah. Now, one of the things I tell the boot campers, I tell my students is do what you can for, well, how do I say it? We call it educational marketing, so to speak, like create tutorials because that creates exposure for you. And that will help people get to know who you are, see your work, and then increase that chances of you getting that job. Do you agree? Do you feel like that is something that's still viable, you know, in today's world where there's so much content being generated in our small niche of a niche? You know, it can't hurt, right? What's the Mm -hmm. alternative? Not doing it. And then what do you get? You get nothing. You know what I mean? So number one, it makes you better and it makes you know the tools better. And number two, uh, you can create a following. Like you said, I don't know because I started this a long time ago. So I'm just, I'm riding the wave of something. I I threw a pebble in the water 10 years ago and Mm -hmm. now I'm just kind of riding that wave. So it's easier for me probably to post something and actually get anybody to give a crap about it. But, you know, that's not to say you can't start now. And if you're good and you're talented and you can teach, I think that's a boon. And I also think that shows an employer, not only are you, you going to come into our studio and are you going to be an asset monkey? Like, do we need another warm body who's going to do what we tell it? Or are you going to be somebody who's going to be exploring things, can explain things, can can make the people around him or her better? You know, that's another really important thing when I'm hiring, at least, is like, are you interested in being better? And honestly, most students are. I've yet to meet the students who's like, eh, I don't know, maybe I'll make some stuff. It's like, no, of course you're excited and you want to make things and you want to get better. Um, But if you've already shown that, that's the other thing, too. When we talk about portfolios, don't make me guess. Just put it in there. If you're good at teaching or you like, if you can come in and go, oh, yeah, I did these tutorial videos for the students around me. They were having problems. And I understood this concept. So I made this series. Wow. How cool is that? That's just as cool as you go in. Here's a cool weapon. You know, if you taught somebody else how to make a weapon and you taught the people around you how to be better. Wow. Because we need that. A lot of people in the professionals in the industry, especially uh, when I teach students, I'm excited. I'm actually more excited to teach students because they're interested in learning. And they're actually easier to teach. When I teach professionals, oh boy, it's like pulling teeth sometimes because they are they already got their workflow, man. They, they know how to open 3D Studio Max. They know how to extrude a face. What are you doing with this ZBrush stuff? I don't know. Blah. You know, they've already, they've already shut down in their brain. So, you know, for students, they, they come in, they're, it's almost ingrained that they're excited and they want to learn and they want to. And if you want to share too, that's even better. And if you can show me that you can do that, hey, that's great. I would say that's awesome. Cool. All right. What about some of the new things that are out there? I want to talk a little bit more about this. And really what I'm trying to do is just get a sense of what advice we can offer to students to expand their reach and whatnot. Then I want to open it up for questions for those of you guys who are here who have questions. So feel free to shout them out and put them in the chat. I'll pull them out as we kind of go. Okay. Um, But you you stream live, right, Michael? Yes. Useful, powerful, a good way to reach people, boring as hell. (laughs) you know that's you know i uh one of my favorite things to do is take student work and uh so i teach at cg master academy and i take student work and most of the time it's it's a lot of technique so mostly i just take Mm -hmm. take take technique but i have a discord channel and occasionally on the discord channel they'll be like hey can you take this model and uh you know just kind of riff on it and that's really fun to me so for one of my live streams i took one of my discord moderators models and i just kind of had fun with it you know had fun with the design talked about the process talked about anatomy 
And it was actually kind of refreshing because I don't get to do that as much as I would like. I'm usually on the technical side. So I actually got to go in here and be like, hey, let's talk. Like you were saying, let's talk about the wrist. Let's talk about the radius and the ulna and, uh, you know, lateral and medial epicondyles and how that bony landmarks and all that good stuff. So and what it means when you cross sits over and how these things are connected. So, you know, it, it kind of got me. It, it, it's just another thing where. This is actually live streaming, which which is what got me in more into thinking about design because I've always been like, well, I'm I'm all technique. I can I can show you how to use a program. But then I realized when I started live streaming, I was sweating bullets because technique doesn't save you on the stage. If you're trying to make something cool, you better be damn good at designing. And it doesn't even matter what you use. Nobody cares if you use the clay brush for everything. If you use a clay brush for everything and you make something cool, you win. You beat the guy who uses all the techniques in the world and is just kind of polishing an embarrassing turd for hours. You know what I mean? So that's what kind of got me thinking really hard about, because I mean, for early in my own live streams, I was like, God, I'm having a hard time making something appealing and I can't just sit here and like, mm-hmm. just do it. So it's kind of an eye opener. And it also, it's also, I think maybe a little healthy to maybe sweat bullets. And that's why I do presentations too. Um, I feel I give pretty good presentations. I'm a pretty natural speaker. But it's also like it gets to my guts. You know what I mean? I get nervous. It's a lot of work. I'm terrified up until I start talking. And then I'm like, oh, this is fine. I'm just talking to people and they're responsive and they're not going to boo me or throw things at me. So then I can kind of settle into my presentation. But, um, you know, taking yourself out of your comfort zone, I think, is a totally healthy thing to do. If what you do is use a program and you have your hotkeys and anything outside of that bubble is uh, dangerous or it's too much for you to handle, I think you're going to have a hard time in this industry because you can be a dinosaur in the blink of an eye. Every four years, everything changes. It does a 180. So stay relevant, stay exploratory, stay excited. Don't get too caught up in muscle memory for your hotkeys or don't get too caught up in how you navigate in a program. And if you try something new, it's like, oh, I can't, I don't, I didn't master it in 15 minutes. This is a garbage program. I hate the interface. It's like, no, you know, what's a good interface to you is what you know. And you're only the master of what you know, but you're an apprentice and everything else. So really, if you want to master stuff, you got to get out there. You got to get nervous. You got to try things and you got to get out of your comfort bubble a little bit. And live streaming is a great way to do that. Mm-hmm. And even if you have nobody watching you, putting your stuff out there is just another way to get your belly tight. <laughs> you know what I mean? And get scared. Mm-hmm. And then and then when you get scared and you accomplish it, the feeling of accomplishment is great. So I would say just do that. Yeah. And also, I so I stream awesome. on my channel and I have my YouTube channel and then on also on Pixelogic's channel, the Pavlovich Workshop. So this goes way back. And if you go back real far, you'll see I'm kind of kind of rusty on my playlist here, the live stream full episodes. I don't know. It's kind of embarrassing to me just to kind of look through here and go way back here and be like, oh, okay. Well, you know, got to start somewhere, right? So, but it's worth it. I like it. <laughs> it's great. I think it's also very inspiring because students get to see a whole spectrum, right? As opposed to just like, oh, you, you know, he's a, he's a superstar. You know, we get to see the whole thing, which I oh, think is awesome. That's a great point, too, because I will make myself look incredible in editing. I can go in knowing barely anything and come out of a video looking like I've wrote the program. But when you're on a live stream, man, if you can't find a button and you forget like a step or like, oh, wait, what am I like? Oh, my God. It's immediately you're sweating bullets. It, it screeches to a halt. You can't edit it out. So, yeah, you can actually Tunnel focus like you just 
per, everything closes in. Exactly. <laughs> and it's almost like, God, can I just like unplug my computer real quick and be like, technical difficulties, man. I got I to gotta get out of here. Um, I've never been yeah. there. Never. <laughs> You're a seasoned pro. But it, I mean, yeah, if you want to watch, like, you, yeah, if you watch my videos and you're like, oh, this guy's amazing, watch my live stream. You'll see how mediocre I can be. And maybe that helps you <laughs> feel good about being making mistakes because you got to make mistakes. It's about making mistakes early and fast and learning from them. Make all the, I don't care if anybody who works for me or works with me, if they make mistakes, I encourage it. It just gives us a point to move away from. And then if we don't make those mistakes again, then great. But make mistakes is not a big deal. It's just, you got to learn from them and move forward. That's awesome. All right. So we're going to answer or ask some questions out here um, from you guys. Let's start with this kind of crazy question here. Mohammed, do you think character modeling or sculpting field will die soon because of character generation software and character scan stuff? Um, no, I mean, may, I don't know. Maybe. Who, who am I to know? I could be one of the guys that's like, germ theory is not a thing. I'm a, I'm, I'm a professional and I know what I'm talking about. And then, you know, things change. But, you know, I'm all about procedural software and about making things procedurally and may having my dream would be to make a weapon just pulling some sliders around and calling it a day. Now, would that really be a dream scenario? Because why would you need me? You know, I'm basically proceduralizing myself out of a job. And it, mm -hmm. I don't know, that'll probably happen. But, you know, when it comes to like scan data and photogrammetry, that's great if you're making a 37-year-old man the game. You know, but who wants to play that game? That's that's about the most. I live that game. I don't need that now. If we're ma you know, the same thing with movies, same thing with video games. Just scanning stuff in, uh, and you put it in a game, it kind of falls flat. You have to push it twenty percent at least in order to get it to read. And it's and I'm not talking like make it stylized. I'm not saying you know Nathan Drake needs to have sh sharper features or you got to push and it's like no, you have to just pop it. It has to pop. It has to read. It has to message. Uh, you can't just scan something in and put it in a game. You can, but that's a simulation. That's like a, that would be like a military sim. Now, that's not to say we can't utilize scan data to get us an end result faster or a more uh, representative end result and we can tweak it. I mean, a 20% push is a parameter. Really, mm -hmm. if you think about it, you can push that. You can drag the 20% slider and then, but now as long as it's making good human decisions and it's built in, and it's doing it the right way, then yeah, of course you can just uh, proceduralize that as well. But I mean, if all we need to get in the game is a scan of a 37 year old guy and everybody's happy with that, then yeah, I don't want that job. I'll go work somewhere else. I'll go work on another game. Now that's, I mean, for like a sports game or something like where it is like, Hey, you got to put this person in the game, then yeah, sure. Scan data. Uh, why not? But um, I don't think that's the majority of the game or I don't think that'll be the majority Moving forward, but then again, you get blend libraries too. You might be onto something, man. All right, you convinced me. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go work the drive-through at Wendy's. Career change. <laughs> All right. Claff is asking. Um, he likes the mix of organic and hard surface, and he says currently I'm working as a generalist, but I hear that a lot of companies don't hire people with the title generalist anymore. So, what would you suggest renaming the position to, or what are your thoughts in terms of being a generalist and trying to get that job? Yeah, I'm trying to find some. Good hard surface organic stuff. So, well, that depends. So like when I when a student comes from school and they're like, I'm a generalist, I know what that means. That means you went through the curriculum, you learned, I mean, I did the same thing at Ringling. I learned a little bit about storyboarding. 
story writing. I did a little modeling and rigging and uh, texturing and animation and exporting to, it, I went to Betamax back in the day, but to DVD or to YouTube now uh, or the, you know, digital media. But that doesn't make you a generalist. That makes you generally mediocre at everything because you're a student and you're not a, like a, a true generalist to me is somebody who has like 30 years experience and can literally sit down and be like, I don't know, what do you need? You need visual effects? All right, I'll make some effects for you. Oh, you need me to model? Okay, I'll model. Oh, you want me to rig? Here, let me uh, let me write some Python script and we'll make an auto rigger and then let me uh, you know skin those you know do some waiting and stuff. Somebody who's so been so ingrained in pipelines for so long that they generally can do whatever the hell you need. But as a student coming out and you're a generalist, I'm going to be like, well, where do you want to work? Because I know you can kind of do a little bit of everything, but yeah, you know, I think. <sighs> A lot and a lot of studios too, depending on the size of the studio, it is very compartmentalized. And we're trying, I'm not trying not to do that a certain affinity. I do like people who can do more than just one thing and throw it over the wall and cross their fingers that it gets an engine. I do like people who can know an entire pipeline. So that is useful to me. But in order for me to convince other people to hire you, you have to be good at something. You have to be better than the other candidates at something. Now, being a generalist is a plus and being able to know what an entire pipeline is a plus. But if you're mediocre and you don't have anything that sets you apart where I can go, look at this guy. He's an awesome modeler. Oh, and guess what else? He also knows Unreal and he knows about good bakes and texturing. And uh, he can also concept a little bit. I can hire that. I can't hire somebody where I'm like, well, they can draw a little bit, but they're not that good at drawing. Their modeling's okay, but it's kind of sloppy on their UVs and their low res. So it's not like a production job I can give him. I'm, 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 you're, I'm struggling to find that one thing I convince, I can convince everybody around me because it's not just me making the decision. I have to convince everybody, and I had a lot of departments through the gauntlet I call it, that you can sit down day one and be productive, and then the rest of your generalism is icing on the cake. You know what I mean? You have to you have to set yourself apart in one area and then the generalized generalist stuff can kind of come into play later. This reminds me of this concept um, I was reading about a couple of weeks ago called the T-shaped person. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. Everybody can Google it. But basically the idea is that, especially in today's economy, most of us are multifaceted, but we have one area that we dive deep into. And that's the, you know, the main, the long drop of the T. But then at the top of the bar is all the different things that we have some exposure, some interest, some capacity in, but we're awesome in this one, right? Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I like that. Awesome. Now, Corinne's got a question here, and I think this will be the last question that we get. So Corinne's saying, how do you catch yourself from making the same mistakes on your work, making the, the ears wrong or just catch yourself from doing things that you know you commonly do? What advice do you have for people there? Because, you know, the thing that we have to always remember, like you're in a crew, but a lot of these guys, they have, you know, Corinne's by herself, you know, for the most part. She could show it to her mom, but, you know, that's yeah, different. That's a really damn good question. And I wish I wish I had a better answer because my gut tells me, hey, just go to a forum or just post it online. And it's like, well, I know a lot of I've seen a lot of people who post on our station or post on the forum and it's crickets. You know, and if you're mm -hmm. just starting out or you did student work and you there's a lot of feedback you need, but no one's going to do it because that's a lot of feedback. And who's going to sit there and give you a lot of feedback? That's a lot of work for somebody. You know what I mean? So, God, let me think. Um, do I have a better answer than that? Because I know because that my gut tells me just tell you, hey, go post on the forum. Uh, people will say stuff. 
is that useful? No, I don't think so. And now here's the other thing. Yeah. I haven't been on the forums in forever. Like I don't even go to forums yeah. anymore. So you won't get my feedback. And even at, wow, I'm trying to think, I don't know, Ryan, you were, <laughs> what would you say? I'm, I wish I had a better you know, answer. Richard, um, Richard McDonald had a strategy, I think, that's pretty important. I may not have ever mentioned this to you, Corinne, but his strategy, Richard McDonald's a sculptor, and he just taught himself sculpting. He's a fabulous, amazing, figurative guy. But what his strategy was is he'd put the five latest sculpts on a shelf by the door so that he would always walk by and they were always in order so he'd be able to visually see his progress. And an example for you, Kern, would be print out an image of every single work as you're working on this. And then you got, you'll see five pieces on the wall and you'll see the mistakes. And then that way it puts it inside your body and in your subconscious because you're catching it out of the corner of your eye. That'll help you kind of notice the mistakes and then you'll just automatically change it. Or at least that's the idea. I like that. And I also, that it kind of triggers something in my brain that, uh, and even at work, like ideally the work situation you're in is you're around a lot of good people who are trying to get better and you're doing, um, we call friendly competition where you, you have a drive in you because people around you are doing good work and you want to look good and you want to feel good. So you tend to really focus and put your time in and try and get better. But if you don't, again, if you don't live in that situation, how do you do that? And for me, a lot of times what I'll end up doing is I will, let me see if I have, I don't have my notes up anymore, but I will go to the best of the best or who I feel are the best of the best. And I will go on theirs and I will try to really be mindful. I don't know how to explain that necessarily, but I really try to look at what like, uh, what do I like about Chi Vang? And also what don't I like about Chi Vang's work? You know, I try to be mindful of what's really appealing, maybe what's not working so well. And then going mm-hmm. to those people and comparing my stuff to those people and seeing, oh, my stuff falls a little flat, but he was really successful. Oh, I think I know why. And trying to do that a little bit. So, uh, you know, doing those comparisons with, you know, people you really admire, but not just, you have to have an eye for it too. Because, you, you know, I know this too. When I was a student, I could look at something and I could model it and I could be like, wow, it looks just like that. And then 10 years later, I'll find it in a folder somewhere and I'm like, whew, boy. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you haven't developed the comparative eye yet. But, um, hey, you know, at least you got to start somewhere. And uh, I don't know, that might be somewhat useful. No, I like that. I'm working on a uh, portrait of Jean-Claude and it's like every hour I feel like that. Oh, I got it. Oh, my God. What was that an hour ago? Oh, my God. It's horrifying. <laughs> Such mad. Not to mention the guy's face is just like mostly skull. So it's just crazy. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I think there was one more question we could probably sneak in from Mike, and it might tie into the um, into the summit presentation that you had. Mike says uh, earlier you spoke about focus on automating and streamlining, and uh, it sounds like Mike does a lot of different things. And he says my goal is to produce the entire visual product entirely on his own: matte painting, film editing, writing, animation, audio production. Do you think that's realistic? What's your thoughts on that, man? I mean, that's kind of, I got a taste of that in college. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of really disparate skills where it's like, you can be an amazing modeler, but yeah. does that translate well into video editing or timing or, you mm-hmm. know, geez, there's, there's a color grading, you know, lighting, you know, there's so many things you need to learn. I'm trying to see if it, no, I don't. So, I mean, I think it is possible 
but boy, you got to be, it's almost like being a real generalist. It's like, man, you got to have so much experience to be so smart, but I might be setting the bar too high. Cause I mean, I know, I know a lot of people who graduated who had amazing thesis. Mine was terrible. Don't ever look it up. It's the worst thing you'll ever see. But I graduated with people who did Uh-oh. a really good job, who, <laughs> yeah, who uh, had really nice models and really beautiful animation and really just a nice tone and colors. And so, it, yeah, absolutely. It can be done. You know what? I, what it might be is less about making everything procedural. And it kind of goes back to technical ability or um, technique. It's like, you know, technique and proceduralism, sure, that'll get you far. But really, if you just dial in, you, you know, know what your limitations are, do the best you can within those limitations. Uh, you know, when, whenever mm-hmm. you see a director's work, you know, you know, he's, you know the horror stories about this movie getting made and everything was breaking. And, you know, Ridley Scott had to turn down the lights because he can only have this much of the set. And what do they make? They make a masterpiece because they've worked within the limitations and they did the best that they could with what they were given. And they made, and you know what, when you work within limitations, it focuses you and it allows you to make decisions faster and clearer. And if you need to make a decision because these are your limits and it's a good decision, then you just end up focusing your product into something that's amazing. However, you can give that exact same director all the time and money in the world. And what movie do they make? Probably not a masterpiece. It's probably going to be a mess because they can just do whatever they want. And the decisions are hard to make because they're blue skying all day. And that trickle down to the production floor. Next thing you know, it's a long bloated movie. You know, you know what I mean? You guys know what I mean. You know, know what your limits are. Know the story you want to tell. Know your limitations and tell that story with what you have. Proceduralism aside, if you can work within your limitations, you'll tell a great story. And it'll look great because you're making good decisions based on what you can do. Gilberto named the movie on everybody's mind. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Gilberto. I was like, which one? I couldn't remember the... Thank you. I mean, really, any director. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Michael, man. It's been great. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and sharing your wisdom and, um, and helping us understand how the heck you produce so much awesome stuff. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it's uh, worthwhile for you guys. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of information on here. So if you guys feel like spinning through here on my YouTube channel, I don't know. There might be some worthwhile. All right. Art Station. And it is just Michael Pavlovich. You can get it right in there, guys. Thanks for being here. And for those of you who are in the boot camp, I'll see you all in a little bit in the uh, office hours. If you guys are there for the art test, guys, thanks so much for joining. This is kind of a sneak peek of what we do every single week. And Michael, again, thank you so much, my friend. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. All right. So I want to thank you so much for being here and taking the time to listen to this podcast. And I want to ask a couple of things from you. Number one, make sure you leave a comment or you rate this on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever that you're listening to this. It really makes a big difference in helping us get the word out and to help people understand what we do. The other thing is I want to make sure that you know where to find us. Head over to www.vertexschool.com to learn about all the programs that we have for creatives. Our job at Vertex School is to teach you new skills in creative tech and help you get a job that matters to you. We lock in on the specific skills and triggers that people are looking for in the industry and what you need to do to prove that you can do this job. We're taking applications right now, so make sure that you head over to www.vertexschool.com and apply today. All right, again, thank you so much for being here. Have an amazing day.